This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. When we consider the greatness of a photographer, we often measure them by their iconic imagery. Now, Joe McNally has done that in the world of sports, portraiture, and photojournalism. But speaking for myself, I think what makes Joe so great is that he is an exceptional problem solver. Present him with a photographic situation that others might think impossible, and Joe finds a way to do it. The stories behind the images that he's created are often as captivating as the images themselves. Joe's latest book, The Real Deal, Field Notes from the Life of a Working Photographer, is more than a how-to book. It's a personal exploration of a life that's revolved around photography. The book and our conversation provided me with a wonderful chance to learn some new things about a great guy and an awesome photographer who I've been following for a very long time. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, congrats on the book. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. I know it took a while to put it together. It, you're right. It just it, as you know, any book is a, is a labor. You know, push that rock every day. One of the things I always like about your writing is that, yeah, he he writes like he talks, because I can hear your voice when reading the words on the page, and that's something I've already always appreciated about you. Because not all photographers are good writers. I'm glad to say that you're you definitely have a, a adept skill at the word as much as you do with photographs. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, truth be told, I went to school to be a writer. I was I was in journalism school. I thought I would be maybe a sports writer or something like that. Because you know, the book is as much a memoir as it is uh, an exploration of your life as a photographer. And one of the things that intrigued me was your, your upbringing. Did you go to Catholic school all 12 years from elementary to you? I did, yes. Elementary and then Irish Christian Brothers in high school. I was the first kid in my family to go to a non-Catholic institution when I went to Syracuse. All right. Okay. Because I did the same thing. I went from, you know, K to 12 in Catholic school. Mm. You know, one of the, and I was thinking about that fairly recently in terms of what that was beyond just simply a, having a good education. But it was one of the things that I felt I was in ways that I was indoctrinated is was this deference to authority. And yes, you kind of Touch on that when you talk about going to school and then becoming a photographer and the sort of default mode of being different to people in authority. But as a as a journalist, especially in New York during the 70s, that's something that could be to your detriment, right? 
in terms of not pushing back and making sure you get what you want. So I would really love for you to share with me and my listeners that sort of transition that you had to make in order to be successful as a photographer, because you can't be except the first answer you get from someone in authority and hope to get what you want all the time. This is true. Yeah. I mean, I, I did grow up, you know, with a pretty strict, you know, sense of authority figures. You know, my mother, I would throw in there as well, was pretty formidable. But yeah, you have to chuck some of that or a lot of it when you jump in as a photographer, especially in an urban kind of melee like New York City is, you know, and it's odd. I may have grown up with, you know, surrounded by these authority figures. What it might have also done is given me uh, authority issues. Like if someone says no to me, camera-wise, or I can't do that, that's like a red flag to a bull. I, I start drilling. <laughs> I go after it, you know. And there's always another way. There's always some way that you can possibly find to, you know, get your camera in the right spot, you know, try to, to bring the job home. I mean, sometimes you won't. Sometimes it's ironclad. But I found that respectfully at first, but then with increasing sort of, you know, intensity, I query and ask and then go to another level or, you know, especially in certain countries, you know, the, you know, the initial reaction in many countries is no. Well, what you have to do is find a back door. And that's where, you know, I write, I write a bit about in the book about working with fixers and trying to go around the authority. That always gives me great satisfaction if somebody initially says no, but we get the picture anyway. And surrounded by those characters that you were surrounded by in the, in the newsroom in the 70s, those, those are guys that for whom no was, like as you said, a red flag. There was no way that these guys were going to accept no from anybody. So it seems like you probably learned as much from them as you did from your own experiences out on the street. Yeah, for sure. The newsroom at that point in time was a, a pretty rough and tumble place, and uh, you had to develop a, a thick skin and sharp elbows to make your headway, make, make a, 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 get a, carve a foothold maybe is the best way to describe it because, you know, New York photography waits for no one. You know, it's a very fluid, you know, ongoing situation and you have to keep pace and there'll be disappointments along the way. And I address some of those in the book, but there'll also be kind of this sheer joy of, you know, connecting and, and making things happen and, and experiencing life with a camera in your hands. Did you feel that there was a particular moment in terms of a assignment that you went on where you felt like it was the first opportunity for you to sort of have a breakthrough, not in terms of you making a sort of a good photograph, but being able to do what you have, you know, realizing you had to do whatever you need to do in order to get the, get the photo done? Yeah, I, I, I would say, you know, I, I've been shooting for magazines that had a lot of fairly controlled scenarios, you know, smaller magazines in the time life group like discover money magazine etc which was fine you know as you can make a living doing doing assignments for magazines like those but then i i came you know i took a class with john lowengard who was the the dop at life magazine he ended up hiring me and just a long story short he gave me my first real job at life and it was the art scene in the lower east side and, and he basically just told me just go and you know make a make a grant out of it. You know, don't come back. Don't tell me what you're doing. Just find the story. And the crazy art scene in the Lower East Side at that time was pretty out there. And so I found it was not only a great outlet for my imagination, but the freedom 
and also the cachet of you know calling someone up and saying I'm working with Life Magazine. That was that was really a moment for me, and it was my first big spread in the magazine. And John and Mel Scott, who was the patron saint of photographers, as far as I'm concerned, just really opened that door for me. And it was a pretty wonderful feeling. One of the things you, you talk about early on was being able to look over the shoulders of some of the other photographers who you were working alongside and working with. And, and you have one anecdote in terms of learning from how a photographer would cover an assignment with just 36 frames. And now people, you know, with a memory card can shoot thousands of photographs. But, but tell me what you learned from those early photographers in, in your life in terms of what they did with just 36 frames, and how that affected and, sh and shaped you as, as a photographer. Sure. Um, well, I, I grew up, you know, a bit at the New York Daily News and then moved into wire services and stringing for the New York Times, etc. So watching those photographers, the economy of movement and vision was paramount because the editors back at the paper didn't want to get inundated with thousands of frames on deadline. Larry DeSantis, formidable editor at the UPI, my first championship baseball series. I was so nervous, Bonarx, I, I shot everything I could and I shipped everything I could. You had a <laughs> you had a runner that would come to your position and you'd put film in a bag and caption it and then they would run it to this poor guy who is in a closet of a dark room, you know, and trying to hot bath, you know, ISO 1600 Triax. Larry would be editing the negatives while they were still wet, you know, and slapping them on the wire. And at the end of that first effort, Larry was an enormous guy and he had big fat fingers. <laughs> he, he waggled one of them at me, said, come here. And he goes, tonight you set the world's record for shipping me <laughs> insignificant film. It goes pop-ups, ground balls. What is this garbage? He goes, you shoot everything. You don't ship everything. And that was a good lesson learned, uh, albeit somewhat painfully, uh, to get you know basically your pants taken down in front of the entire New York press corps in a hallway at Yankee Stadium when he was screaming at me. But lesson learned. Economy is very important when you're working as a deadline newspaper wire service photographer. It can be very important as a magazine photographer too, but perhaps a little bit less so because there's some leeway there just for the fact of processing. At the Daily News, we could go from a shot roll of Triax to a finished caption print in about eight minutes. So on deadline, that was very important. The deadline's you know, a little more flexible with magazines. As much as those images, how quickly the turnaround was, there was a lot on your shoulders in terms of making a photograph that was a good composition that told a story in a singular image. Yeah, sometimes you might get the mm -hmm. benefit of having like multiple images on the page of the newspaper, but most most times you might be relegated to, to one shot. Tell me about learning that skill, because, you know, in school, you can learn how to make a well-composed, well-exposed photograph. But telling a single photograph that passes mustard to end up in the pages of a newspaper, much less the front page, that's a hard, that's a hard skill to develop and refine. Tell me what it was like for you. Yeah, um, trial and error, lots of error. Again, Larry, you know, don't mean to harp on Larry. Um, God bless him. He's gone now. But he sent me to cover the funeral. And I, I forget, it was a big time New York politician. And he looked at me and he said, all I want is the muckety mucks. Uh, the big shots. 
important people. I don't care about anything else. Get as many of them in a picture as you can. And I was across the street and a bunch of people came out and people were doing headshots and this and that. I went to a wide lens. I made a picture that was a lousy photograph. I mean, I have to be honest. I don't. I lost the negative. I, I'm nowhere. No front page of the New York Times the next day, and Larry came to me and he said, "Yeah, this ain't a good picture." He goes, "But look at it." He goes, "Muckety mucks, one, two, three, <laughs> four, five, six, seven, eight. and he went down the list. And there was a again a powerful lesson in the currency of the news. You know, you can make a lovely photograph that doesn't have a bearing on the event, and it's going to be an also read. Fought the same fight with magazines. With someplace like Life, you would get a lead photograph. You get a two-page spread in Life, and then the rest of the story would really kind of trickle out. You know, over five or six pages, you wouldn't get that much play. So the race was on when you were on assignment to get the quote-unquote lead photo, that powerful photo. Greg Heisler, who was a very amazing photographer and a dear friend, used to call it the one-picture photo essay, where you get all the elements in one striking photograph. And that's what grabs the reader, and that's what that's what leads the story. One of the things is finding out what the story is, right? Because as as a sure. writer, you might be given some information, but as a photographer, you're kind of sent out there, and you had to sort of figure things out on the fly, right? And you don't have a whole lot of time to figure things out, so you had to be as adept as a sort of a detective in terms of figuring out so that you can get the shot. Because sometimes it may not be obvious who the muckety mucks are, or they may not be any. There may not be any muckety mucks, but you nevertheless have to figure out what the story is. You're known a lot for the stuff that you've been doing as an instructor, where where you're doing a lot of wonderful imaging, we're using flash and stuff. But one of the things I've always enjoyed about your work is that that skill as a storyteller. But the thing is, finding the story, especially when you're under that kind of pressure, uh, is something that I've always respected about really good photographers. And I really would love to to hear you talk about that particular skill because i think you talk a lot about equipment and gear elsewhere but that's that's a particular strength that i think that has always come across in your work and that i'd really love to hear more about yeah that is the heart of the matter being a good photographer is being a good storyteller for sure and when i would go out for the geographic it would be terrifying because you know you have this multi multi week assignment and it's a very large topic and you'd have to drill through kind of the elements of that to find the story and that's one of the things it was like a mantra i would repeat to myself all the time in the field what is the story what is the story what is the story and secondarily a mantra that would go through my head would be entire to detail entire to detail because you always have to accept the fact as a photographer that the people you ultimately are your customers, your viewers are not there with you. You have to show them. And so you have to show them the whole thing. And then you have to drill down, get closer and tighter and deeper. An editor I used to work for used to call it peeling an onion, finding the story, getting closer and closer to it. So that is absolutely something that is on my mind. One of the mechanisms I used to use, and forgive me if I'm going on here uh, about our exit a, a bit, um, but one of the mechanisms I used to use on a major story for the geographic, which could overwhelm me if you thought about it in its totality, what I would do, I'd go out in a day in the field and I would imagine I was an assignment for a newspaper. And I'd say, okay, I have to produce a picture page for the daily paper tomorrow. 
So that means I have to tackle today as if it's an entire story. This is it. This is the only chance I got and make a story out of today. And that way you would approach each day in the field from beginning to end. I need a lead photograph. I need a detail. I need a personality. I need a closer. And that mechanism would drive you through the day to try to find the story of that day. And if you could do that, even if you were on assignment for 12, 15 weeks, at the end of it, you would have a lot of building blocks that could be connected into the overall story. So that is, you identify a very, very important and powerful thing is the idea of a storyline. I oftentimes think of it as a clothesline. And then I hang my pictures on it as I go. The narrative, the narrative thread. So you, would you say that the, the technical side, even if it involved lighting, was a concern, but not as much of a priority as most people would think it is? Yeah, I would say the overriding concern would be to tell a good story, shoot good pictures. Now, is that universal? No. You have assignments as a photographer where you're asked to shoot one striking photograph, you know, like just, you know, somebody who is a personality or something like that. So you want to, you go to town on one photograph, gels, lights, smoke, action, bouncing someone off a trampoline, something arresting that might not make editorial sense so much, but stops the reader and gets their attention. So there's that type of thing, you know, where in an editorial scenario, you're, you're shooting and moving and lighting to editorial effect to the cumulative aspects of the story. And then there's another school of thought where you're walking in and you're just going to try to shoot something that's really cool. It was really interesting hearing about when you started working for ABC, where they were shooting Chrome and you had to start learning with lights mm. and considering how well known you are now in terms of your use of flash and strobe and using all these numerous bits of equipment in order to produce one shot, hearing about you struggling <laughs> to just nail an exposure on a piece of Kodachrome. Considering that this was a relatively new gig for you and all that pressure, how you sort of contended with sort of learning something so critical and exacting on a gig like that? Yeah. Uh, and I, I think I might even mention in the book, it was a because I was a still photographer for a television network, they didn't really expect much. They were there to make TV, not stills. And oftentimes I get two or three minutes to work. And as I think I mentioned in the book, the job sort of expected failure. And I routinely delivered on that expectation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, you know, I was, I was green in, the, in terms of how to expose Kodachrome, how to work with a flash, all that stuff. I was learning as I went. I had my bumps, to be sure. But, you know, you, you wrestle with it long enough and hard enough, and you start to... Uh, to come to appreciate it and understand it better. And it's still a struggle. I still walk into some, some place and I think, oh my God, what am I going to do today? Yeah, like anything, it's a process. I mean, the 10,000 hour rule is a, a very valid rule. You know, the more you do it and stick with it, the better you'll get at it. And I had no choice. I wanted to work. And back in, at that time, magazines were really looking for color. All of a sudden it was like, you know, get me color, get me splash, get me vibrancy. And again, I'll refer back to Greg Heisler. His influence was major at that time. He single-handedly changed magazine photography just by the strength of his color palette and the way he could light. And we were all out there trying to be miniature Gregs, you know, imitate him and uh, find, a, you know, some sort of voice 
you know, that, you know, magazines would say, oh, yeah, I, I want that, that photographer, you know, color was, was paramount. And I had to learn how to use it. And I had to learn on the job. Tell me about the, the community, because you've mentioned a couple of, of different people. And, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, the, the editorial world was a completely different place as it is now. But there still was a, a, a strong sense of community, especially around New York. Paint a picture for us for what that was like, you know, the friends that you had and how competitive was it? You know, how much was how much was competition a force amongst you? It was it was pretty fierce. I have to say it was pretty fierce. You know, photographers, you know, were kind of unique. I mean, you know, again, growing up in newspapers, you know, I felt that was great training because at the end of the day, all the photographers would come back to the wet darkroom and process. So there'd be this whole gaggle of people and you'd see all this film coming in and, and they'd be giving each other grief. And, you know, you can only imagine, you know, the, the back and forth. And as a young photographer, I could learn from that. You know, and, and watching their film and watching how they conducted themselves, that, that was really, really important. And I, I firmly believe in the photographic community because my first introduction to it was very powerful, that I was mentored and I was welcomed to, to a degree. That continued in the magazine world, but with magazines, the jobs got more and more fierce and the co competition was very, very powerful. National Geographic is a very competitive mm -hmm. place. If your story does well and gets four extra pages, that means somebody else's story gets four less pages, you know, <laughs> you know, and uh, you can, uh, you can bump some heads pretty good. But generally speaking, I have found the best of the photographers uh, that I was blessed to know and still know over time were confident enough in their own skills that they could welcome you, help you, mentor you, befriend you, support you, and that competition would be secondary. There was a nice story that you included in the book about your place got burglarized and the people on the staff on the paper all pitched in helped you to recover, yep. you know, get enough money to recover, you know, not recover, but, you know, purchase some new equipment for you because everything you had had been stolen. Yep. And I still have it. It's in a drawer about 10, 12 feet away from me. I bought a Leica M4 and a 35. That was also a spur to learning because I had no meter, you know, in that camera and I couldn't afford a, a handheld. So I got to be pretty good judging Triax just on the face of it, you know, looking at a lighting scenario and trying to dial that ISO 400 or what we called ASA back at that point, 400 into my head and trying to guess exposure and play that game. So every step you take in this industry of monarchs is a, is a, I think, a, just another step on the learning path, you know, no matter how difficult that step may be or seem to be at that time, you keep going and on the other end of taking those series of steps or whatever it might be, or, or that story that's incredibly difficult, you come out on the other side of it and you're a better photographer. One of the things that uh, is advised to young photographers is to just keep shooting. That if you want to get better, mm. you have to make a lot of photographs. And in your early career, I yep. think, is marked by the fact that you made a lot of photographs, but also it was propelled by the fact that you had no fallback. You had to do this in order to make a living for yourself because your mom certainly wanted you out of the house. And, uh, she, you know, she, she, you know, let you know that, you know, you weren't going to be coming back. 
So I think that that sort of pressure to be out there, because you have to do it, you have no other option, keeps you out there, especially when you started working for, for UPI, where you're working, uh, where you weren't on staff, you had to go out there constantly hustling, hustling, hustling. Does that kind of being put under those circumstances, do you think that that makes for a better photographer from your experience? I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no, when there's no plan B, you gotta work really hard at making plan A work, you know, and I'm not knocking it. It's the way the field has developed. There's a lot of folks now who are out there and they, they have, you know, photography is just a piece of their puzzle part of their overall picture. They might do web design or graphics or art direction, or, or they might be something, they might be a teacher, or they, they might be uh, a lawyer during the week, but they shoot on weekends, weddings or sports or things like that. So photography has changed, as you indicated earlier. But the mission I had, and it was very widely shared, let me put it that way, in the photographic community in the 70s and 80s coming up in New York City was, this is what you did. You were a pro. If you were, if you could support yourself, you could pay your bills. Uh, you were a pro, you know. And you took jobs, you knocked them out, you got paid for them, you kept going. And there wasn't a lot of money in those jobs, you know. And so you had to, as again to borrow your word, you know, you had to hustle. You know, it was not unusual in those early days for me to shoot a job for the AP in the morning, a job for UPI uh, or the New York Times in the afternoon, and then go to Studio Fifty Four at night and knock something out, bring it to the UPI desk as a celebrity dancing or something like that and get 50 bucks for it. So you know, you, when you're younger, there's a, the, the desire to sort of prove yourself, especially to, to other photographers and other editors. Do you feel that that mentality is something that was always there even as you started accumulating successes? Yes, absolutely. I got into the business to make good pictures and win the respect of my peers you know, and be acknowledged as a good photographer, a good member of the community. And that was a very, very powerful motivator for me, was to get to a point where I would shoot jobs and make pictures that would be recognized. And also even, you know, and this was hard to do, you know, this is a lofty goal for any photographers to make pictures that will be remembered and have some reverberation to them over time. And that was uh, a goal, a, a really serious goal. It was fuel for the fire. I, I did not want to fail. I did not want to be and also ran. I wanted to stick this out. You know, the, there's a component of success in this industry that doesn't get discussed all that often, and that's plain and simple durability. You know, are you durable enough to stay the course physically, emotionally, uh, financially, you know, you can have your real, real low points, you know, and that has happened to me, certainly. Um, what overrides is, you know, there's a passion to do it, all that's, you know, you love photography, the, those are common phrases, but, um, you know, Balanchine, mm -hmm. the, the great dance master, when referring to dancers, he said flat out, he says, I don't want people who want to dance. I want people who need to dance. And I think that's the case with many photographers who have stayed the course. It's not something you want to do. It's something you need to do. You, you write in the book, which took me back to something that I had discussed with David Burnett, was the fact that you work so hard 
to be present in other people's lives, but sometimes not prioritizing your own. And I think in terms of what you're speaking of here, is it's a, that's something that is difficult for a lot of photographers, especially with respect to sort of longevity, you know, that sometimes they, their own lives, their own mental health, their own physical health sort of gets thrown out to the back burner. Tell me about your journey in terms of in the midst of doing all that you needed to do to be a photographer, creating your own healthy life out of, out of the midst of all that constant hustle. That's a good and powerful question. And, you know, the, you opened the door to it by mentioning David, who I've known since, I think, 1979, 1980. At the Tokyo Olympics, I was asleep at my, at my computer about 1 o'clock in the morning at, the, at track and field. <laughs> I was, had been editing, and my head just went down. And all of a sudden, I feel his hand on my shoulder, and I look up, and it's Burnett. <laughs> you know, <laughs> David's older than I am. You know, and mm -hmm. he's there and he's toting around four by fives and, you know, the speed graphic kind of stuff. And he's just amazing. I've always had the utmost respect for David. And he, that conversation you had with him is very accurate. We're so concerned about being present in other people's lives or being witness to something that is important. That drives us to the point where a lot of us neglect our personal lives. National Geographic you know, I, I say this really, you know, was not necessarily uh, a happy place when it came to the personal relationships of lots of those photographers. Things happen. You know, I reflect on them myself. I, I wrote about this, not in this particular book, but, you know, my mother died. You know, I was in Singapore. I never made it back for the funeral. You know, that's to some folks that would be just unthinkable. And I'm not saying it's normal. <laughs> It's not saying it's preferable, but it's the fact of the life you lead. You're oftentimes gone. I have two daughters. I missed a lot of first steps and birthdays and had, you know, some bumps in my personal life for sure. And it's not all due to being a photographer, but certainly some of the pressure this field creates to keep after it, to, to shoot jobs, to make a living, to frankly be there at the bigger jobs. You know, the, the noteworthy events, you know, they're like a magnet and you can find yourself letting go of other things in your life that uh, are extremely important. It's cause for reflection. Now you touch a lot of that at the end of the book in terms of, you know, the letter to your younger self in terms of take it easy. Don't take yourself so seriously. And I'm sure that those are lessons that have been made over over time. Do you feel like that's that's advice that you more easily take to heart now? Sure. I've grown up a bit. <laughs> I dare say there's been the onset of some measure of maturity. <laughs> I won't go too far there. You know, but, <laughs> but I also, oh, 20 years ago, basically met an incredible human being, Annie Cahill, and happiness really became a, a part of my life in a very substantial way. That has, I don't know, eased ease the flames of this you know uh, we come first the job doesn't come first and that uh, just a super important thing that it's a it's like a, a bomb for your soul when you have that incredible person in your life who who understands you and also eases your pain and also understands that sometimes you have to go sometimes you really have to do this and that uh, level of happiness was something that was just so important for me to recognize and embrace as I went forward in this career. 
Each month, the Charcoal Book Club sends you a new photo monograph that they've carefully selected for their members. But even before you receive it, you can visit the website and enjoy a preview of its content and learn more about the photographer. If you just visit the site, even just casually, you'll be amazed at the kind of content that they're sharing with their members. Even if the genre of photography isn't to your taste, or at least you don't think so, I guarantee you that you're going to see a book and experience a book that is really going to inspire you and make you rethink what's possible with photography. I think that having a diversity of materials to look at and to inspire you is an important part of any photographer's life. And charcoal provides you the way, the best way to do just that. Become a Charcoal Book Club member today and enjoy a great new title every month. It's a flexible service. If you don't like that month's selection, you can choose another of their titles of similar value. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., and it's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember, use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And if you enjoy the work that we're doing here at TCF, we can always do with your financial support. Each episode requires a lot of time, effort, and resources, and your donations help us to make this show possible. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. And if you've been thinking about it for a long time but have never gotten around to doing it, why don't you take the time to do it today? It would be a great help. Thank you so much for your continued support. Do you think that earlier in your life, when you were less embracing of that philosophy, do you think that it was driven by your identity was so tied up with what you did that that's all that really mattered? That's because you were so invested in that as as, as your identity. That's why you made some decisions that you might not have made today? Sure, sure. And there's also a question of being younger and being hungry, you know, for the next job. And you know, the, that, that next cover of geographic, the cover of life, you know, you, you drop and run because this is, you know, that the thinking is that, well, if I get this job, then I can maybe relax a bit. You know, this, this job is going to open these doors for me. This is, this, and the pace, you know, it just never slows down at that point. So, and you can also become very full of yourself too, as a, as a young photographer, a younger photographer in your prime. Yeah. When uh, I was in my 40s and early 50s, there were maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 magazines in the world that people paid attention to, like seriously paid attention to. And I was either shooting covers or headshot covers for six, seven, eight of them. That's kind of heady stuff when you get a whiff of it. And, you know, you're shooting cover of life, geographic, time, Newsweek, Sports Illustrated, these were very powerful entities. And then there's also the pressure of the magazines put on you. You know, I, I remember Heinz Klutmeier, legendary photographer at Sports Illustrated. He took over the, the photo directorship at Sports Illustrated. He saw me in the hallway and he goes, hey, McNally. You know, and I love Heinz. Heinz is 
a legend and I mean, just an incredible photographer, an example for all of us. But, you know, we bumped heads a little bit and he was like, go to Milwaukee tonight. You know, <laughs> um, you know, it's like, yeah, I went to Northern Ireland uh, during uh, the hunger strikers with Bobby Sands and I dropped down into London and uh, photographed Peter Jennings because ABC had reached out to me. I, they wanted me to photograph Peter Jennings and he was based in London at the time and the Pope got shot. Jennings looked at me and said, you want to go to Rome? I said, yeah. And so I jumped on a private jet with Peter Jennings and his producer. I flew to Rome. and I spent the next two and a half weeks there for Newsweek. Didn't come home. I wasn't supposed to be gone that far or that long. My first trip to Africa for the National Geographic was to Tanzania. It was before there were, you know, sat phones and, you know, email, cell phones, nothing. Uh, there was in this small, very small town, there was one working phone. And I stayed in the, in the center of the middle area of Tanzania and I felt that the story was bigger than the timing that my editor had allocated. He said, you know, seven, eight days, whatever. I stayed three weeks. I couldn't get a word out. I just stayed for three weeks. I came back and I said, you know, I felt the story was more important, that piece of it. And he said, okay. That was geographic back in the day. They didn't bat an eye if you went out there and spent more money. Yeah. Didn't bat an eye. But my family, you know, I had a young daughter at the time. Dad just wasn't there. So do you feel that being able to slow down, the pressure of having to sort of perform at that level. Some people feel like they need to have that per pressure in order to thrive. So as mm -hmm. you have chosen to sort of like slow down and not be so on yourself to perform to that degree, how do you think it's making the choice not to sort of cater to that? How has that made you a different photographer? Sure. Well, I, you know, I thankfully I really enjoy teaching. I mean, what is a what does an athlete do as they age? They coach. So, and this book is kind of an example of that potentially. But also, too, you know, uh, I'll be straight up with you. Photographers nowadays have to be very proactive in terms of creating their own future. Magazines are gone. You know, Newsweek isn't going to call me because Newsweek doesn't exist. Life is gone. Geographic is I don't know, a shadow of what it once was in many ways. Time is effectively gone. Sports Illustrated, just could you ever think the most powerful sports magazine in the world just wouldn't be around anymore, you mm -hmm. know? So it's not like the phone is ringing off the hook here. We're still staying phenomenally busy, but it's, it's different kinds of busy. I do marketing photography. I do social media stuff. I have relationships uh, in the industry and outside of the industry that we continue to shoot for uh, commercial clients. But those, those jobs are certainly don't come along with the frequency that, you know, the magazine jobs used to. Also, too, let's remember, when I started shooting for magazines, Monarchs, the day rate was $250 a day. Mm -hmm. So to make, quote, unquote, a decent living, you had to put together a bunch of those days in the course of your year. But everything was different back then, right? An F2 and F3 and F4 cost, what, two, $3,000. And you hung on to that camera for five years until the next one came around, et cetera. So, uh, so it is, it's very, very different now, the way uh, the field progresses. I do a lot of writing. I create proposals. I try to construct scenarios that uh, people will respond to, and I'll get an assignment out of it. So we are phenomenally busy, and we're doing well, but it's just very, very different kind of busy. As you sat down to, you worked on this book for 
over two years. It's mm -hmm. always, you know, an interesting opportunity to sort of look back and reevaluate yourself, your life. What did you learn about yourself as a result of writing the book and revisiting your past? Hmm. Um, good question. I, I realized, you know, on a certain level, how lucky I am, lucky as a human being that I found something to do I really love and still love. And that is a very powerful thing to find in life. So I've been doing this now for over 40 years. And as I said in the very opening page, the frontispiece of the book, I said, I imagined a life and then I took pictures of it. That's a very lucky thing to do. I also knew in very early in life, I was not an office person, kind of, I, I didn't thrive well inside. Uh, I sought the field. I sought, you know, the world. I've loved being a very small part of the world with a camera and roaming it and learning. I mean, travel and experience like that is the best teacher in the world. The best teacher you could imagine. It beats sitting in a classroom any day, you know, to be exposed to this world and all of its wonderful kind of resplendent craziness and wonderfulness and difference. That is a great gift that photography gives you. And I kind of realized that all over again, writing this book. When I think about what my career has afforded me, the thing that I think most about is, is the friendships and the relationships I've had. Hmm. If I have a photograph that I favor, it usually has nothing to do with what I did technically in the photograph. It's the story behind the photograph. It was about the experience that I had with people, the people I remember, the, you know, the dinner we had afterwards. For me, that's one of the, the joys that this career has a sort of afforded me because like you, you know, I, I don't much favor being behind a desk all the time, you know, because there's a, a routine about that and sort of uh, an emptiness that can develop, <laughs> you know, because there's nothing really different from, di from day to day. But with a career like that you've enjoyed, you've had the opportunity to, to, to get to know not only muckety mucks, but people who uh, have meant great deal to your life. When you think about some of those people, some of those those people who you who you've come to to love and care about, tell me about the the importance of them, and are there a couple that kind of stand out for you after you know forty years as a photographer? I know that's kind of a a big thing to throw at you, but I'm really curious to to hear your thoughts on it. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, this is going to be coupled probably with people who became or are dear friends, and also people I have learned from. You know, the beautiful thing about being a photographer, as we know, is that you're oftentimes sent to photograph excellence. You're sent to photograph someone or something or someplace that's so unusual or so wonderful or their skill set is so highly developed, be it a, a dancer or an author or a doctor or a ball player or whatever it might be. Someone is really good at what they do. And that, you know, becomes a powerful influence as well. Um, you know, I've had a very, in a very small way, a, a relationship with Tony Bennett over the years. I shot Tony for Life Magazine, and we don't stay in touch at this point. You know, he's he's having difficulties, but what an amazing icon! What uh, what an amazing thing to stand in the presence of talent like that, and just extraordinary. And so you you accumulate. You know, Jay Maisel always has said, I believe it's Jay who said, being a photographer is a license to steal experience. Mm, love that. You, know, you become a little bit of an expert about a lot of stuff, you know, 
because you bounce off a lot of stuff and you make friends along the way. I, I, I have a chapter of, of that in, in the book, you know, make a picture, make a friend. My friend Rita, who I asked to go up onto a roof with me, is still my friend all these years later. Sharon Montplaisir, three-time Olympian on the fencing team. I photographed in 96. I took the clothes off the Olympic team. It was scandalous back then. You know, now <laughs> not so big a deal to photograph naked athletes. But, uh, oh, my God, I was on the Today Show and Good Morning America. They were like, oh, how did you, you know, well, you know, it wasn't that hard, you know, because these people are amazing athletes. And they're at the peak of their physical condition. So they were, a lot of them were very willing to show their physique and the very first time, I mean, she knew beforehand, of course, but very first time I met Sharon, she did a nude with me and she trusted me and I shot her for life and it was a wonderful session. And I went back and I photographed her again because she's just so powerfully beautiful and so skilled as a fencer, as a human being, the radiant aspects of her personality were wonderful to photograph. And I've just photographed her again. 96 was the first time I met her. So we're looking at 28 years. You know, I just photographed her again about three or four months ago for the book. So that's the, wow, that, that is another gift of this field, yeah. you know, to bond with people because the, the making of a photograph of someone constitutes on some level, maybe not always, but on some level, the beginnings of an emotional relationship, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, it, there, there's a bridge there that starts to be made. There's a there's a person in your life early on, Fred uh, Demarest, and I, I, I love that you in your in your dedication in the book, you talk about those early influences. And I know there was cer certainly someone in my life who completely transformed it as a result of their their presence. Talk to me about him because I think he was very seminal in in terms of your career as a photographer. I would love to hear more about him. Sure. Fred was, um, uh, say in the book, he wasn't charismatic or dashing or anything like that. He was a little on the fuddy-duddy side of things, you know. And as students, we used to call him Uncle Fred. But he became my mentor in a very powerful way. He allowed me to take photography classes, even though I was not a photo major. Lord knows what he saw. And he tolerated me as a egotistical, brash jerk of a student, you know, like all fired up and, and, you know, emotional and irrational and uh, possessing of no real skills, you know, nothing warranted, you know, the attitude, you know, um, but Fred just kind of channeled and saw energy and the possibility of, of uh, a future for this young photographer. And he was, a, a wonderful, as a teacher, he was the best intersection I ever had. He opened up the door to my whole life by allowing me to go forward in the photo program, which was against the rules, quote unquote, at that, at that time. And then inviting me to go with him to London. He was teaching in London and he said, look, I can pay you a little bit of money. And if you come with me to London, you can do nine credits for free for towards your graduate degree and i'll need you to run the lab and mix the chemistry i was like yeah okay <laughs> and i was really in london where I, it finalized for me I, I knew i was going to be a photographer because i had to do an independent study and so you could do this back in the 70s i jumped on a train to lowestoft the easternmost part of the uk and talked my way onto a fishing trawler 
and I went to sea for 14 days in the North Sea in November. Oh my God. And it was, it was pretty brutal. And there was no going back. Once you stepped on that boat, they weren't going to, you know, you started getting sick or you didn't like it. They were not going back. This is what these guys did for a living. And I remember just plunging through waves and the ice and the, and the cold and the spray. And I knew right then that was it. I, was, I wanted that life. And Fred, as smart as he was as a teacher, when I brought back, I was, oh, wow, I got this thing. And, and he gave me a B. <laughs> he gave me a B. There was room for improvement. And he was absolutely right. That was, he was just so formidable for me. And, you know, and we became friends. I stayed in touch with him. I visited him in, him in hospice. And we had a long last talk together. And I miss him, you know. He was the definition of a good teacher. So what, what do you aspire yourself as, as a mentor and a teacher? Because I know you teach a lot with workshops and stuff, but I, I'm speaking more of the people who, who, work for, you know, who work for you as assistants, you know, in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, what you share with them and, and considering what those people and like Fred meant to you, what are you hoping to sort of pass along to those people who work directly with you and see you as, as their mentor? Sure. I, I try to be, you know, a positive force in their lives. I try to be a good example, not only in terms of a photographer, but a human being and a business person, you know, cause you have to learn, you know, the whole waterfront of being a photographer is not just, you know, out there in the field, you know, clicking away. There's a lot that goes into it. So I hope they come to understand that one of the powerful things in my studio is, is, uh, uh, our studio manager, Lindell Mastro, has been with me for 30 years, mm. you know, through thick and thin. And she is a wonderful producer and studio manager and business person. And she counsels these younger assistants as well. She's, so she's on the phone with them a fair amount as they go off into their own careers. They call her up about, like, how should I bid this? What do you think about this? Et cetera. And Lynn is a very, very uh, knowledgeable voice. Uh, it, it, in addition to myself, you know, the two of us have literally run this business for many, many years. And of course, my wife, Annie, is part of the business as well, has been now for the last eight years. After being with Nikon and um, Adorama Camera, she came on board and has been running our social media and marketing. So we're a very small team, but the people who work with us, I think, intersect in a positive way. They see like a, a small operation that can really work. The one thing that makes me happy, let's say it that way, is when I feel like I have faced a challenge and despite my own insecurities and self-doubts, somehow figured out a solution and and achieved it, you know, and and Mm -hmm. discovered that I was much stronger, more adept than I might have given myself credit for initially. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, is that something that is part of your desire now? That even though, you know, that your circumstances of how you make a career uh, have changed as compared to 20 or 30 years ago. That desire or that need still persists as much as the creation of a photograph. Sure. You know, they got to go hat in hand in lots of ways. You know, you get a job that you, terrifies you and you succeed at that. That's a, a very powerful feeling. Enables you to maybe take that next step. Enables you to approach the next scenario with greater confidence. I think the same thing happens in your career as, you know, a human being as a photographer. That you see that 
you're involved in this seriously. And what you come to realize is it's not just pictures, though the pictures are very important. You know, you have to shoot them and get paid for them and deliver on assignment. But the fact is you actually, I think as a photographer, can do people a lot of good. I've had people literally break down on the set if you make a good photograph of them because they've never seen themselves as beautiful, perhaps, mm -hmm. or they've never seen themselves rendered like that. And it's unusual. And so you try your best, I think, to make when you go out into the world, whether it's by yourself or with a crew, to make it a positive experience for everyone. And that's always a challenge that you accept when you go into the world to, uh, you know, to, to shoot something or to take on a job uh, or in life, you know, be a good photographer. But before that, or along with that, be a good human being and be the good shepherd of the pictures that you make. You know, I, I did a, a project after 9-11 that was very emotional called Faces of Ground Zero. And I'm still in touch with folks from that time. And they've let me back into their lives to photograph them occasionally. And one of the reasons they let me back in is that they trust me. They've never seen their photographs used in an untoward fashion or I've never, you know, done anything with those photographs that someone could potentially be offended by or uh, upset with. You know, I, I, they become partners, emotional partners in the process, especially a, a project like that that occurred at a very emotional time in our history. The last few years have been really difficult for obvious reasons, but it's also provided a, an opportunity for, for retrospection for many of us in terms of what's important, what do we want to do with the time that we have, who we spend it with. I wonder what this time has been for you. Good question. You know, the book was a channel for me, that retrospection you speak of. You know, it was certainly very powerful. And the everyone, I think, probably received some measure of, of a silver lining in this pandemic and all the stress that we are under, despite the fact of what feels to be overwhelmingly bad news in so many aspects of, of our, our public life. A powerful thing that happened for me is, is um, simply being home. I came home. March 15th, 2020. That's 75 days into the year. I had traveled 68 of them. And then all of a sudden it just got shut down. And I've been home. You know, I've been home now for, you know, coming on two solid years. And I've gone here and there, of course, Tokyo, you know, on assignment, California, this and that, but it's been very, very isolated relative to what it was. And the powerful, powerful thing that uh, has occurred is, is just how much I love being home and how much the road as an allure, as a magnet has faded away. Still love the world, still need to go out there and make some pictures still have some surprises left in me. You know, I'm looking at Paris 24 for might be the last Olympics I shoot. All of those things, you know, mix together. And you look back at, at this illustrated life that you've led and dive into your archive. You know, we've done that. You know, the weird life of a photographer. I spent a week with Donald Trump in the late 80s 
and I spent a fair chunk of time with Joe Biden. Who knew? You know, yeah. all these years later. And the sale of those archives helped get us through the pandemic. You know, I've been able to go back into my archive and find surprises, things I never, you know, had looked at before because when you're on deadline, you're moving so fast. And then the magazine prints a set of selects and you figure, well, those are the best pictures. And you never look at the rest of them, literally, you know, you just never bother. And so there's been time to do that. And that's been a wonderful gift. Uh, the life of a photographer can be very tough sometimes, to be sure, but you have to really regard it as a series of gifts about her. It just is. Yeah. My last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Wow. Good way to end it. So many photographers I admire and feel strongly about people who are doing great work. I'll just hark back just recently, people, you know, I bounced into Doug Mills at the New York Times mm. is doing incredible work, very steadfast behind the camera. There's some really, you know, um, Youngie Kim. Have you ever spoken oh, with yeah. Youngie? Mm -hmm. I haven't spoken with, but I know the work. Yeah. Youngie is, is man, she's talented and Boy, does she have a, a point of view, you know, which you need, obviously, to be a photographer, to be part of the world. But Youngie is just strong. You know, I'd highly recommend reaching out to Youngie. It would be a really good conversation, I think. Well, Joe, thank you for this conversation. It's really an honor and uh, a joy to have a chance to speak with you again. So thank you so much for your time. Glad we, uh, we intersected again. You're doing a great thing here, and I appreciate very much um, your presence in this industry. You've always been a, a, a real leader and a, a powerful, positive force. Thanks to Joe for joining us. Explore his work by visiting joemcnally.com. And if you're a fan of the work that we do here, there are different ways for you to support the show. You can write a review on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, share a favorite episode on your social network, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and you can support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Sinbet Set, Michael Brennan, and Judy Lindo for their generous contributions. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and to use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.